I invite you this morning then to turn in your Bibles to John 15. We're continuing in this section. John, I thought I would be finished with it, but it's not finished with me yet. Today we're going to focus really on a single verse, and that's in verse 25. We'll look at that in a minute. But it was so profound to me that I really couldn't get much beyond that, and I thought, well, it might be good to spend some time right here. Normally, we'll go through a little larger chunk of Scripture to focus on, but um, today we're going to focus on John 15 and 25. And we've been through this section, and if you remember again in John 15, 18, Jesus introduces this section by saying, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. That's the context here. This is the night before Jesus' crucifixion. He's not only preparing them for his own death, which he will receive in a few hours, But also, he's preparing his disciples there immediately for the treatment that they're going to receive as well. And, likewise, all who would follow Christ, all who would be disciples, all who would be Christians, they can expect persecution. Christianity is not a pie-in-the-sky religion. Jesus told his disciples clearly what they can expect. Now that doesn't mean that every Christian is going to receive a great deal of persecution comparable to what Christ received or these immediate disciples here received. I mean, we've lived in a culture for years here that has respected the Christian ethic to a great degree thus far and still has great influence in our culture. We may see the societal winds prevailing in a different trajectory, but some of it is repressed by simply the influence of Christianity on our culture. But the degree which the hatred of the ungodly towards those who are godly in Christ Jesus, the degree in which it is expressed, it's expressed in in various levels. To some, it might be hardly perceptible at all. But with others, it may be great violence. But at the root, under really the cover of societal politeness, if you will, social respectability, the world, that is the world system under the governance of Satan, the prince and the power of the air, he hates those who are in Christ. It'll be demonstrated in ways that suit their passion at various times. This is a difficult situation, and again, if it manifests itself in in your life and in your experiences, I think Christ's word to his disciples is, well, expect that. 
you hope for the best, but you have to prepare for the worst. And it happened to Christ. He was actually crucified, tortured to death, humiliated, and he tells his disciples, well, don't expect anything different. But in verse 25, if you go ahead and look at that, all that has happened to Christ and all that happens to his disciples, his followers, is under the sovereign control of God. It is in accordance with his plan. Notice the phrase, it's verse 25, that, well, this is to fulfill the word written in their law. They hated me without cause. Notice what's being said here, that, that everything that has happened to Jesus, everything, including what will happen in just a few hours, has been prophesied. That is, told beforehand. Jesus told the disciples beforehand constantly what was going to happen. And beyond that, he reaches further back into the Old Testament scriptures in which all of this has been foretold. It was foretold that Jesus would suffer. That he would suffer for actions for which he is not guilty. They hate it without a cause, that he says here. He's innocent, yet violence is perpetrated against him. So here you have a great tension, by the way, that rises up in how to resolve this. This evil being done under God's very sovereign control... And the mind of man has a hard time understanding all of this. And here's what they have a hard time understanding. The scripture is clear. God uses evil, whatever it might be, to accomplish his good purposes. This is why we say God is sovereign over all things. He ordains whatever comes to pass. It's a decree of God. It's a hard concept in practice. And a lot of people react negatively against God because, well, something bad happened. Why do bad things happen, quote-unquote, to good people? You might respond, well, really there's none good, no, not one. So perhaps that isn't really the case. But some have conjectured perhaps God isn't good at all and rebel against him. Because if he was, then bad wouldn't happen. Or perhaps he is, is not sovereign and he can't help it. It's just acting out and, and he's observing what's going on. In other words, he's not strong, strong enough. Philosophers have tried to reconcile this tension, if you will, the Enlightenment philosophy that was underwritten by um, Aristotelian thoughts of reason and logic saw a contradiction in God. 
A God that would create a perfect world and yet would contain evil in it. This modernism, which we now call it, led to what we might say within the church, liberalism. That is, they see that apparent contradiction, at least in their mind, and therefore what they decide to do is just throw out the text of Scripture of what God has said. It's an outright rejection of the faith. In time, philosophers who were not willing to totally give up on God, instead, in their own mind, then created the ground for a new philosophical idea, and that would be, well, we'll just embrace the contradiction. And there are contradictory things because in our minds we can't understand this, so we will reject modernism and the focus on reason. Instead, we'll give it up and just embrace subjectivity, relativism, and so forth. This embracing of contradictory ideas led to what we might call now postmodernism that really has engulfed the thinking of our society today. It permeates many, it is the it is the source and the ground for many of the sub-ideas that you have heard of that when I think through them, they are illogical. They are irrational. They are certainly not the wisdom of God. And in fact, it leads to a path of insanity. No one lives, really, in, in the light of that kind of contradiction in reality, you couldn't. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And yet many practice under that idea and ideology and have implemented those ideas in some practices in which they do. And like I said, it, it leads to insanity. Concepts, modern ones, do you want me to describe them? Critical race theory is one of them. It's rooted in postmodernism. It's pagan thought. It has no relationship to the truth of Christianity and the Bible. It, it creates these groups, and some groups are innocent, and some groups are guilty. It has nothing to do with the individual. It, again, rejecting the idea of the Enlightenment and embracing this idea of categories of group, but really this is rooted in postmodern thought. The idea of, of some of the laws that are now being uh, enacted and put out there that you're going to see more and more of that really bothers me considerably. I, I heard the current administration is trying to promote things in education in which a young biological boy then can participate in girls' sports in high school. 
they're suggesting that XY can be XX just by a statement. And of course, that's scientific, right? <laughs> it's a rejection of science. You see, that's what I'm getting at. This is postmodern thought. They're taking contradictory ideas and just running with it. Because reality doesn't exist. This is the insanity of the mind of man, which I would argue is a fallen state. No wonder they come up with those ideas. If you begin with the mind of man, whether it's rooted in modernism, which is at least an appeal to rationalism and logic, or you have gone over the deep end, which academia certainly has, and it is now rearing its ugly head as these folks who have come to power, I'm talking not just the current administration, but, but many, many people in our culture are embracing these postmodern ideas. Both are contradictory ultimately to the truth. And beloved, the truth doesn't come from your mind. It comes from God. We have a problem. We have a fallen mind. The mind of man has been defaced by the fall. It hasn't been erased. We, we're still made in the image of God. But that mind is marred. It's marred with sin. And you cannot get a perfect, clear view of the truth by just thinking about it. Go read philosophy. It's, it's wild. And particularly how they will argue against one another and make great ideas and arguments and so forth. But in the end, you'll find no consistency and you'll find a constant moving of the ideas. It, it, it evolves, if you will, and not necessarily to the better, often to the worse. It degenerates. The solution is simple, and this is what I call the church to do, and all that you might have influence over in your life, believe Jesus Christ. He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. You may have competing philosophies concerning the origin of life and the purpose of life. Can I tell you, both of those are found in one person. It is Jesus Christ. The only way, really, a fallen man can know the truth would be the truth to be revealed to him. Can I tell you it has? It has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Somebody outside the fallen world, God, invaded our world in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what would have to happen to answer all things and to make them known. Now, from a human perspective, I may never comprehend the incomprehensibility of all things. I totally understand that. But I know someone who does, who created it all, 
who upholds it all by the very word of his power, that is Jesus Christ. I can put my faith and trust and believe in him. And I ask you to put your faith in Christ. We're not asking, as the pre-postmodernists might say, Saren Kierkegaard and others might say, oh, take a blind leap. No, no, no. Not a blind leap into contradiction or illogical step into irrational thought. We're calling you to trust Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Belief is not an ideology to which we're calling you. It is not a religious practice per se. It is not even a system of thought. It is rather a person. It is God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Note our text in John 15. And and again, I'm going to jump all over the place today. If you want to follow along, you can. Our focus is going to be on verse 25 as we unpack it. So, therefore, we'll just have the extra time to go look at a number of other passages. But look right here in your text in verse 22. This person that I'm saying is the fundamental root to truth, to knowledge, to ideas and ideology. It is the person of Jesus Christ who invaded our world and spoke his words. We talked about that last week. Verse 22, he has has come and he has spoken. Christ has spoken. He has given us his word. Beyond that, Beyond that, what he told, he told his disciples ahead of time, his word, that he was going to rise from the dead. In 1429, the previous chapter, he says that very thing. I told you that so that when it happens, you'll know that what I am speaking is the what? It is the truth. So that you may believe. Not believe in something irrational. Not believe in something illogical. Believe in the truth. It is Jesus Christ. He said it and then he did it. That is his works. Both his works and his word are both validated. It is his word. It is his work. And that word and that work is not something of a recollection of our memory. It has been put down in the very word that you have before you. The scriptures. Paul would tell the church at Corinth. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 1. I'll read you from 15 while you're turning. Paul told the church at Corinth the root of this gospel message, this good news, he says, I delivered what I had received. That's what somebody had told him. What? That Christ died died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, you see. That he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's what you have before you. That is, the, that is the source of truth that we have today. Scripture and Scripture alone. The very words of Christ, the very works of Christ, 
Should I say from the beginning, beginning in Genesis and ending in Revelation, in the beginning God created. Who was it? Christ. And in the end, He will come again. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. All of this from the beginning to the end, ultimately it is about Christ. It is His Word. It is His work. All of it is His Word. All of it is His work. These promises have been fulfilled and Jesus has kept his word and he did works that our text tells us that no one else did. Even his enemies confess that there is none like him. Nicodemus looking at him said you have to be coming from God because no one can do what you're doing apart from it. All of it then is validated through the miracles and works that he did. And so we reach then into the mind of man if that's what you're looking to solve all the problems of the world the purposes of things, the beginning of things, or whatever it might be, you're starting from the wrong point because it will not come to you through the mind of man. Are you in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Paul understands this. This is an incredibly educated and brilliant man of his day. He meets a person called Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. It changes his entire direction of life. One who had persecuted the church now turns to promote the church. He has a change of his mind. Through divine revelation, he is given true wisdom of God. And he says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then he will preach that word, that cross of Christ. Verse 18, he recognizes that the word of the cross is folly to those that are perishing. Go ahead and preach everything that I just said, and guess what? Most of the world is just going to laugh at you. It is going to be folly. Prepare your young folks when they go to the next level in their life, if it's in college or if it's in career or wherever they might find themselves. Most people are going to laugh at you. Be prepared for you. That is part of the persecution. It is folly to them. But to those who are being saved, (laughs) it is the power of God. Absolutely powerful enough to totally, dynamically change your life so that you were once blind, now you see. And Paul quotes then the Holy Scriptures once again. The source of this truth. Where could you find it? It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, And the discernment of this discerning, I will thwart. Trust me, there's many wise people. 
In Corinth in particular, it's a place that was known for philosophy and wisdom and rhetoric that all promoted here. And Paul is standing right up in the midst of them and saying, hey, as discerning as you might be, as brilliant as you might be, you can't get to there from here in your own mind. So where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And beloved, you're going to see much of the folly then of the world that they can't even understand what they're doing in destroying their own culture and society in some of their philosophical wisdom. For since the wisdom, verse 21, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Do you see what I'm saying? You can't get there from here. It pleased God then through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, beloved, I know that that doesn't seem like a great plan to change the world. But might we go on a bunch of evidential apologetics and just prove all of this? What we're saying does line up with the evidence, but it has a different starting point. That's the problem. And you're not going to convert people to Christ by proving all these facts, although they're true, and although they are logical, and although they do line up with everything. But the mind of man is gone. It has to be regenerated. And that is through the preaching of Christ. We preach the cross. And through the power of the Spirit, He will apply that message to their very heart and regenerate it. And then the response is true faith. Not faith of a coercion, not faith of convincing but a faith brought about through the work of the Spirit to actually change the mind of those who hear Christ. And he goes on, verse 22, he says, For the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. That is, these religious folks, they just, they just wanted more works, more miracles. Jesus did a bunch, and then they asked him after he fed 5,000 people, which would have been about 20,000 if you count the women and children, and then they come along and they say, well, what sign are you going to show us? If I sat here and did this and took nothing and gave you all something and had tons left over, would you want me to do another trick? Maybe just to enjoy seeing that, but could there be any more proof? Well, they wanted more. And it never ends they want more. They can't be satisfied by that because that isn't going to bring about faith. You can't sit there and have some sort of faith healing thing and expect then people to genuinely come to Christ. That's not going to bring them. They'll just want more Stuff. The Greeks seek wisdom, 
Of course they do. They, oh, well, tell us this. Tell us that. And then the questions are never ending. And everything you say is rational, logical, doesn't matter. It won't get there because you don't get to God through your own rational mind. Instead, verse 23, but we preach Christ. And this is why I do this. This is why I preach Christ. It's folly, in a way, to expect it to have any effect. But this is what Christ has commanded us to do, and he would save many. He will save those who will believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block then to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both from the Jews and the Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, the mind has changed and now you're given the truth. That is what? The truth of God, the wisdom. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We preach Christ. We preach Christ alone. And we preach him from this very word and this word which is being fulfilled. Notice Back to John 15, if you have it there again, I'm just going to focus on one, one verse. I gave you a background to it, and now I'm going to expand a little bit more on it, but just to see it and hear it in your hearing one more time. Verse 25, but Jesus says in relationship to this persecution, the word that was written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Let us pray. Father, I pray that indeed you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would enlighten our mind. Feed your children with that sustenance that they need to grow in grace and knowledge of you. If anyone under the sound of my voice, whether here or the rebroadcast of this message, if they don't know the wisdom of Christ, I beg and plead that you will call many sons and daughters to glory and give them the light and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And even in the simplicity of their heart, I pray they would confess Jesus Christ as Lord. To the glory of your name. Amen. In John 15, 25, as we break this apart, and hopefully I won't lose you too bad here, but notice here the text talks about this has to be done in the fulfillment of the law. That they hate, they hate, and yet this has been prophesied by God and it's going to be fulfilled. This has been written down before the events take place, right? The events haven't happened. Christ hasn't been crucified and yet they're going to do it and they're not going to do it for any uh, reason for which Christ is guilty of anything 
And God ordained it to be. That's the idea of written down ahead of time. If this is God's word and it's written down in the word before it happens, it must happen. If it doesn't happen, then God is a liar. Do you feel the tension here? The men here are freely putting Christ to death. They want to do it. The Jews want to kill him. The Greeks are happy to kill him. They are doing what they desire to do. And yet, it has been written down beforehand that this will happen, and it must happen to fulfill it. Now, I want to show you from Scripture this concept, but just to give you a doctrinal handle to hold on to this idea, we call this the doctrine of compatibilism. Okay? B.B. Warfield explains. This is a belief or an understanding, and it is derived from Scripture, and that's where I'm going to show you that in a moment. But just to explain it and give you a category to explain this tension, it's a belief and understanding that God, God's predeterminism and meticulous providence, that is how things work out in, in real time, right, in our time, his predetermination is what he prophesied about, what he wrote, right, and then what happens is this idea of providence, it's compatible with voluntary choice. That is, God does not twist the arm of Judas and make him betray Christ. And yet he was predetermined to do so. Okay? He didn't twist the arms of the Jews or the soldiers or anyone else. They did freely what they wanted to do. So his predetermined word is then compatible with choice. Now, how do you know that's true? Because you can philosophically figure that out. Good luck with that. There's one reason I know it's true, because Jesus said it, and that's enough. His word, his work. Now, if I don't quite get the incomprehensibility of how God works all this out, you know, I'm fine with that. Uh, I'm going to trust Jesus Christ. I will trust those that Christ has appointed and in, through the Spirit inspired then to record for me in a source, not a theological textbook, not a philosophical idea, but in his word. Now, I don't know how much time I have to show you some of this, but we'll look at what we can. And let's go to the Apostle Peter. And then we'll look at Peter and John and the disciples. And we'll look at the book of Acts. Acts is the history of the church. Peter, who's this disciple who was in this upper room, Acts chapter 2, if you'll turn. Peter, who's here, heard all this, has been trained by Christ. He's preaching now at Pentecost. 
And in verse 22, I'll just grab a section of this. He explains this concept biblically. Men of Israel, verse 22 of chapter 2 in Acts, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So he's preaching to the crowd. This crowd would have known exactly what Christ had said, these all three-year preaching and all these miracles. He knows, they know it. And he's basing his message on that. He says, this Jesus, verse 23, note the phraseology here, delivered up according to the what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This definite plan is his idea of this predetermination. We might say that God ordained Foreknowledge here is certainly not that just God knows. Of course he knows. He knows everything. He's omniscient. But the foreknowledge here is is in the idea of foreordaining it. He knows this is going to happen. It will happen. In fact, it is written in Scripture that it's going to happen. It's his definite plan. And then here's this compatibilist idea of voluntary will by the people. He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See, God's plan providentially executed, and they are guilty for acting in accordance to their own desires. God then raises him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible to be held by him. And I'll just go to a couple chapters later. Here you have John and Peter. And this is the response of the disciples that were their disciples who did get this teaching, who understood and responded in chapter 4. Essentially the same idea here in verse 27 of chapter 4 of Acts. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus Christ, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius of Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, note this verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And I'll have to read on. And now, Lord... Look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed in the name of your holy servant, Jesus Christ. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Of course, you can speak the word of God with boldness because they actually believed. (laughs) They actually trust. And what word were they speaking? They're speaking the very word of God. And beloved, I, I pray that indeed you would speak God's word even if you're not able to fit all these things together and understand. 
the choices that people make are their voluntary choices. That's what he's that's what he's that's what the text is saying. They're not coerced. They are made in accordance to their own desires and nature. Warfield continues. Voluntary choice is not the freedom to choose otherwise, that is, without any influence, prior prejudice, inclination, or disposition. Voluntary does mean, however, the ability to choose what we want or desire the most. Compatibilism denies that the will is free to choose otherwise, that it is free from the bondage of corruption of nature for the unregenerate, and denies that the will is free from God's eternal decree. People do what they want, and they will do what they want, but God will accomplish his purpose. And this is part of the problem with the mind of man. They don't recognize that God actually has a purpose in all things, including evil. And the greatest evil accomplished and done, of course, is crucifying the Lord of glory. Did he have a purpose in that? Yes, the redemption of man. And you say, well, how does God coordinate all of that? Well, you're not God. (laughs) All I can say is this is what Jesus has said. And I believe him, whether I can grab all of it in my mind to understand it. In fact, I expect I don't. I have no idea how this world here continues day after day as it does for years and years and years. I look up in the sky at night when the stars are out and think thousands of years ago people looked at the same objects. How how does this continue? I mean, I have trouble growing plants. You know, they die on me all the time. And You know, how's all this work? How's it all hold together? And no wonder there's so many people that are panicked about the environment. And, you know, I'm all for clean water and air, and and it's the best it's ever been in in our history. We're, We're great strides towards trying to do that. But no wonder these people are so panicked thinking that everything's going to fall apart because how would it possibly hold together? I have the answer. You want to tell them? You know. All things are upholded by the word of his power. It's Jesus Christ. Do you know him? That's who you put your faith and trust in. Don't put it in men. They'll fail. They're not that wise. In verse 25 again in John 15. One other aspect here. It says that the, this, this law must be fulfilled. They hated without a cause. This is really a compliment, uh, combination, if you will, as often is done in Scripture, probably from Psalm 35 and 69. In, in the West, we have a tendency, and I do, I can't help it, I've got to quote every single word of a verse as if you know, I can't do parts of it, but they often did parts of uh, verses because they knew the text so well, and it would represent a larger frame without having to necessarily repeat it. But this probably comes from Psalm 35 and Psalm 69. Those words you'll find 
precisely uh, Psalm 35, 19. Uh, it's, it's David speaking, but those who rejoicing over him, persecuting him, he hate, they hated him without a cause, and 69 is essentially the same thing. It says, they hated me without a cause. David functions here in the scripture as a type of Christ. Did I tell you all of scripture is about Christ? Yes, it is. Even the indications of somebody like David, yes, it is about David. It's a real world. It's a real situation. But David is a type of Christ. It is from David that Christ will come. It is from David in which he will fulfill the, uh, the king on the throne forever and ever as another David I, if you will, from the lines of David. David is a type of Christ. He's innocent in this conflict that he's in, and they're hating him, that is David, without a cause. It points to the fulfillment, of course, of Christ, who is even more undeserving of persecution, and he's hated for no reason. The entirety of the Old Testament and all of these figures are ultimately about Christ, Daniel's about Christ. David's about Christ. Joseph is about Christ. All of them are about Christ. They portray him. It says here in our text, it's this stuff then is written in their law. And so here he's standing before men who would know the scriptures, that is Jesus Christ, And he calls his disciples to proclaim this word to people who knew the text of the scripture, but they didn't know the substance of it and what it points to. And here I invite you to turn back to John chapter 5, if you're in John. (coughs) We've looked at this before, but let me just review this quickly. And here is the argument. This is a, the idea of in their law, as he states in, in 1525, is a indictment. The greatest oppression was from, from the very Jewish leaders who had the very law in their hand. The very law that Christ spoke of. In John chapter 5, Jesus confronts them over this issue. He says, The Father himself has borne witness of me in verse 37 of John 5. God himself has borne witness. God actually did speak from heaven. This is my son whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. But beyond that, demonstrated through the miracles that he did, and it, he would say in verse 37, His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen. Christ is standing before them, and they don't see Him. They're looking past Him. They don't see Him as the Lord of glory. How do you know? They're not falling down at His feet, confessing Him as Lord and worshiping Him. They are not following Him. If you don't follow Christ, you haven't seen Him in that sense. Got it? If you read his word and you're not stricken by it, 
doesn't see, do anything for you, you're not hearing the Father. Verse 38, it says, You don't have your, His Word abiding in you, for you don't believe the one whom He has sent. So they had the Word. They had words memorized. They knew a lot of religion and religiosity. But guess what? They didn't know the one that God sent. That is, they don't know the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the emphasis. Well, you search the Scriptures, he would say, because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's those that bear witness about who? Me. Can I tell you every chapter, every verse bears witness about Jesus Christ. That's what I'm saying. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Oh, you think you're going to find life outside of Christ? There, none exists, only death. I don't receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. Well, if another comes in his own name, well, you receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Don't think I'll accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For what does it say? He wrote of me. You get it? All of it is about Christ. The beginning to the end, it's all about Christ. If you don't believe his writings who wrote of Christ, how would you believe me? That's what he's saying. All that is written then in the scriptures about Christ then must be fulfilled. I'm out of time, but I want to, I do want to take a moment and just share part of an incredible passage that you're familiar with. It's Isaiah 53. Here's Isaiah, at least, I, I forgot off the top of my head, I think 700 years or so, before Christ walked the earth. And here's the word that he spoke about Christ in Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He didn't run around with a halo on his head. He, instead, he was persecuted, wasn't he? Despised, Isaiah says, and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one with whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed and stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we're healed. All we like sheep, we've, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he is taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man. Oh, someone that heard the words of Christ, Joseph of Arimathea. We'll read about that later in this Gospel of John. But Isaiah knew about it and it was written here. And again, God is control of providence. Although he had done no violence, they hated him without a cause, right? And there was no deceit in his mouth, and yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Oh, do you know him? And therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. They hated him without a cause, but God will use this evil to accomplish his good purposes. And my word to you is simply, do you know the way, the truth, and the life, this Jesus who fulfilled all of it? Let us pray. Father, I pray again we would be reminded of your great grace. And though we may not be able to put everything in a neat package in our own mind, may we read your word and believe. May we trust what the prophets have written, what Jesus has said, what the apostles have reaffirmed so that we would recognize your purpose in all things and that is simply for your glory for the beauty of all that you have done and so may we respond in great praise and joy may we receive the love of christ that is incomprehensible in our minds and delight in you whatever peripheral circumstances might come, away, come our way. We know Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that that would seal our hearts with great comfort and joy in these days. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Beloved, you have a moment now to think on these things. Respond not to me, but directly to Christ where you are. I'll give you a moment now.